3: Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: Welcome to season three of Lies Agreed Upon, a podcast about Hollywood and history. I'm Leah Parody. And I'm Brian Krim.
4: So remember this past spring when, you know, just a few days into the Russian invasion of Ukraine, Vladimir Putin essentially threatened the nuclear annihilation of the Western world, you know, as if nukes followed the rules of geopolitics. It was kind of triggering for people like us who lived during the Reagan-Thatcher years when we were the ones, you know, casually threatening nuclear war. I remember seeing Rachel Maddow and Lawrence O'Donnell explain to their audiences what MAD stood for, the nuclear triad and brinksmanship, it was kind of a total time warp. Yes, it really was. And uh, to
0: kind of get us in the mood, let's start with a clip. This is Lawrence O'Donnell reviewing the history of MAD for an audience that probably never had to live under it. Tonight,
5: the nuclear nightmares of the Cold War return to the world, thanks entirely. To Vladimir Putin, most Americans aren't old enough to remember the Cold War very well. It was a Cold War because the two greatest nuclear powers in the world at the time, the United States and the Soviet Union, knew that there were absolutely no circumstances in which either could ever fire a shot directly at the other, or nuclear war could and probably would break out. And that meant that we in the United States just had to watch as the Berlin Wall went up and as Czechoslovakia was invaded because firing one shot could get us all killed. That's why the United States will not be able to enforce a no-fly zone over Ukraine.
0: We decided on the Cold War theme soon after the invasion of Ukraine, in part because of coverage like this, our unofficial slogan this season is everything old is new again. Yes,
4: yeah, so you can see how, you know, Putin's loose threats of nuclear retaliation just for, you know, arming Ukraine or, you know, economic bar- uh retaliation that sort of thing brings all this back for some of us and it's a reminder in a way that mad never loses its relevance or maybe even effectiveness. That's something we can debate as we Go through our movies today.
0: Yes, and and think about what it was like for our parents in the eighties to hear Reagan and and Dropov trade nuclear threats, having themselves lived through the Cuban Missile Crisis in nineteen sixty two, which was quite possibly the closest we ever came to an actual nuclear exchange, knowingly anyway. The Cold War superpowers came so close to destroying the world that they actually got spooked and they took several steps back so that we had things like uh, efforts to improve communications with the hotline, Um, also uh, the beginnings of a period of detente where there were uh, test ban treaties and then eventually uh, arms reduction treaties. In fact, about 18 years went by, but you know what we do here. We look at how culture processes terrifying moments like this one. So we're going to be looking at what happens when everyday Americans suddenly, in the early 60s, know all this nuclear terminology. What do they do? Well, culture capitalizes on it, obviously.
4: Yeah, so we have two movies that uh, do exactly that. Uh, The ones we're looking at represent the, the zenith of what you might call, you know, atomic culture that began immediately after Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Another wave of this began in the 80s, which we'll cover in another episode. But our movies, so let's start with these movies. Dr. Strangelove, the wonderfully important and influential classic from Stanley Kubrick, came out the same year as our second film, Fail Safe. It's far more earnest counterpart, telling virtually the same story. Failsafe was directed by Sidney Lumet, another great director. So 1964, that's the year. You've got two years distance from the Cuban Missile Crisis, one year since the JFK assassination, domestic turmoil of all sorts, and here come these films about nuclear war. One darkly comedic and scary, and the other just kind of scary. In some ways, these films have a lot more in common than they in, you know, than they might realize.
0: Yeah, definitely. So what are our lies agreed upon for this episode? Well, the first lie is that MAD, mutually assured destruction, was inherently dangerous and flawed, likely to lead to Armageddon. But that's actually a lie because it worked. We don't like to admit it, but Both of these movies do push that lie. I mean, we're still here, right? Okay, that sounds flippant, but we have to acknowledge that in a bipolar world dominated by nation states that had bureaucracies and stable leadership, the systems dramatized in our films actually worked. In a world with like a dozen nuclear powers that remains to be seen
4: yes and maybe you know a sub lie if, if that's a word related to this relates to limited nuclear war failsafe actually makes a case that exchanging cities to destroy is horrifying of course but a plausible tactic to take if worse comes to worse dr Strangelove kind of you know goes the other direction and exposes this for the absurdity that it is but there are certainly as we'll tell you there were a lot of um think tanks and scientists and politicians who are making exactly that case, that limited nuclear war was something we should prepare for and actually winnable.
0: And the second lie is about civilian leadership in the nuclear age, which really gets at what you're talking about there. Civilian leadership in the nuclear age, you know, we're conditioned to see the military as inherently, well, militaristic. Ever since Korea, the military-industrial complex became a a permanent entity. But what these films do is they highlight the role that civilians played in pushing brinkmanship and in pushing ideas like limited nuclear wars were uh, possible. Civilians like Henry Kissinger, Herman Kahn, Edward Teller, The guys that basically that the historian David Halberstam called the best and the brightest, these are the hawks of the Cold War, not necessarily the military guys. So we see Dr. Strangelove and Failsafe skewer the military, sure, but the most dangerous characters in both movies are actually civilians.
4: So let's recap our films and let's begin with Dr. Strangelove. I you know I think a lot of our listeners know the film and might be asking themselves, you know, what more can these two say about it? Well, give us a chance and we can't assume too much prior knowledge. So we'll break it down and get more into the origins of the film, the source material and Stanley Kubrick's process as a director a little later as well. Yes, Dr. Strangelove is, of course, directed by Kubrick. And he
0: wrote the screenplay with novelists Terry Southern and Peter George. George wrote the novel Red Alert, which Kubrick originally wanted to adapt without many changes. But, you know, while the story is the same, Kubrick, over time, having so much difficulty adapting the original, the source material he finally sort of cracked it when he realized that it would work much better as a black comedy. The cast is great, largely because half the cast is Peter Sellers. No, no, not really. Yeah, that's right. That's why uh, <laughs> Peter Sellers, <laughs> yeah, yeah, a brilliant comedic actor. And he plays three roles he plays group captain Lionel Mandrake, president Merkin Muffley and the titular character, Dr. Strangelove. We also have George C. Scott as General Buck Turgidson, Sterling Hayden as General Jack D. Ripper, Slim Pickens as Major Kong, and you also might recognize James Earl Jones as a B-52 crew member. Later, we'll... Tell you who some of these outrageous characters are actually references to in real life.
4: Yeah, we really have to admire and thank Stanley Kubrick for his consistently juvenile sense of humor. So there's that's that's something you find in all of his movies, whether they're serious or not. And this one, he's just going all out, revealing himself to be kind of an adolescent, but it works. Uh, the film begins at a strategic air command base when Jack D. Ripper orders his B-52 bombers to go past their fail-safe points where they normally hold, you know, waiting possible orders to proceed into Soviet airspace. He tells the personnel on the base that the U.S. and the Soviet Union have entered into a shooting war and therefore he's going to have to take command of surviving forces and, uh, you know, basically start World War III uh, because you have to assume in this scenario that the president and all the other leadership is dead. but. He's clearly just gone off his rocker.
0: Yes. And meanwhile, in the war room at the Pentagon, General Turgidson briefs President Muffley about the attack that General Ripper ordered. And as you said, you'd think that a nuclear attack should require presidential authority. But Ripper used Plan R an emergency war plan enabling a senior officer to launch a retaliation strike against the Soviets if everyone in the normal chain of command, including the president, has been killed during a sneak attack. Turgidson, in the face of this situation, tries to convince Muffley to take advantage of it to eliminate the Soviets as a threat by launching a full-scale attack. Let's listen to that very famous scene here.
3: If
1: we were to immediately launch an all-out and coordinated attack on all their airfields and missile bases, we'd stand a damn good chance of catching them with their pants down. Hell, we got a 5 one missile superiority as it is. We could easily assign three missiles to every target and still have a very effective reserve force for any other contingency. An unofficial study that we undertook of this eventuality indicated that we would destroy 90% of their nuclear capabilities. We would therefore prevail and suffer only modest and acceptable civilian casualties from the remaining force, which would be badly damaged and uncoordinated.
6: General, it is the avowed policy of our country never to strike first with nuclear weapons. Well,
1: Mr. President, I would would say that General Ripper has already invalidated that policy.
6: (laughs) That was not an act of national policy, and there are still alternatives left open to us. Mr. President,
1: we are rapidly approaching a moment of truth both for ourselves as human beings and for the life of our nation. Now, truth is not always a pleasant thing, but it is necessary now to make a choice, to choose between two admittedly regrettable but nevertheless distinguishable post-war environments. One where you got 20 million people killed and the other where you got 150 million people killed. You're talking about mass murder, General, not war? Mr. President, I'm not saying we wouldn't get our hair mussed, but I do say no more than 10 to 20 million killed, tops, uh, depending on the breaks.
4: Yeah, there's a you got to love George C. E. Scott in, in that role. I this kind of, you know, before Patton, even I think of him as Buck Turgidson. But, you know, would it surprise you to learn that there was an entire industry of people whose job it was to think in exactly those terms? Now, that wasn't hyperbole which is one reason why Kubrick concluded the movie had to be an absurdist com- comedy. Uh, you know, this The reality itself is already just too comical or frightening in both. Exactly. Meanwhile, Group Captain Mandrake,
0: another Peter Sellers character, uh, an RAF exchange officer who's serving as General Ripper's executive officer, realizes that, there has actually been no attack on the U.S. when he turns on a radio and hears pop music instead of civil defense alerts. When Mandrake reveals this to Ripper, assuming that Ripper was mistaken, he refuses to recall the wing. And that's the point at which Mandrake realizes that Ripper is insane. Mandrake Mm -hmm. tries to convince Ripper to give up the three letter code that's going to recall the planes, but Ripper refuses and rambles on that the communists have a plan to sap and impurify the precious bodily fluids of the American people with fluoridated water, which was indeed a favorite crackpot conspiracy theory of the age.
4: Yes, and sadly, I heard it repeated in the last four or five years. So again, everything that is old is new again. <laughs> and that includes crazy paranoid theories. So, so back in the war room, we learned the Soviets have a doomsday device, which will automatically destroy all human and animal life on Earth if a nuclear attack were to hit the Soviet Union. According to the Soviet ambassador, the doomsday device was made as a low-cost alternative to the bomb race. You know, they're always trying to save a buck there. The president now calls upon Dr. Strangelove, a former Nazi and strategy expert. Strangelove explains the principles behind the doomsday device and points out that since it was kept secret, it really has no value as a deterrent.
0: Yes, and actually one of the things to point out here is that this was really a, a, an issue, this, this idea of the, the expense of the arms race. And so the idea of sort of coming up with the budget solution is both funny and also actually quite realistic. So after uh, a, attacking the, the base finally and killing Ripper, uh, the code recalling the bombers is in fact sent. But Major Kong's plane is the little B-52 that could. And it manages to dodge all the Soviet and U.S. efforts to destroy it, and it reaches its target. Back in the war room, Dr. Strangelove lays out his crazy mineshaft plan to house the best and the brightest and repopulate the Earth. Of course, with a ratio of 10 females to each male. Turgidson rants that the Soviets will likely create an even better bunker than the U.S., and... Argues that America must not allow a mineshaft gap. A visibly excited Dr. Strangelove bolts out of his wheelchair, shouting, Mein Fuhrer, I can walk. And then we have the lovely montage of nuclear explosions accompanied by Vera Lynn's famous World War II song, We'll
4: Meet Again. And now to Fail Safe which has a a similar plot and came out the same year, but it is not a satire. It's directed by Sidney Lumet, who is also an excellent director, with some amazing credits to his name. The Palm Broker came out a year later and you have to add to that 12 Angry Men, Dog Day Afternoon, Network, and The Verdict. Like Dr. Strangelove, Failsafe is based on a novel, um, which is also called Failsafe and written by two political scientists. It stars Henry Fonda as the president of the United States, Walter Matthau as the nuclear war strategist, Professor Groticella, although if you look at it in text, in like the novel, it, it, you would almost want to pronounce it grotesque, and I think that's you know by design. Larry Hagman is the president's interpreter, and there's some other great character actors, Dan O'Harely, Frank Overton, and Fritz Weaver. And you're not imagining it, but if you, if you think you see Dom DeLuise in a small role. So one of the strange things about Failsafe is that it casts comedic actors in serious roles. Matthau, Larry Hagman, and Dom DeLuise will make names in comedy, but they're totally straight men here.
0: Yeah, and the primary difference in the plot between Strangelove and Failsafe is that in Failsafe, the nuclear crisis is purely accidental not the act of a mad general. It's technology that fails, not humankind. And I think that's a kind of a crucial difference in the commentary the two movies are trying to make. During a conference hosted by Professor Grotashella, a computer error causes a group of bombers to go on alert and receive false orders to nuke Moscow. The president attempts to recall the bombers or shoot them down, and Grotushella is called on to advise the president and, of course, advises him not to. Though the military warns that the Soviets will retaliate with everything they have, Grotushella insists that the Soviets will surrender when the bombers reach Moscow. Here's uh, Grotushella doing his best Dr. Strangelove slash Buck Turgidson impression, explaining the value of the first strike. The key thing here, though, is that this is not played for dark laughs. Every minute we wait works against us. Now, Mr. Secretary,
7: now is when we must send in a first strike. We don't go in for sneak attacks. We had that done to us at Pearl Harbor. And the Japanese were right to do it. From that point of view, we were their mortal enemy. As long as we existed, we were a deadly threat to them. Their only mistake was that they failed to finish us at the start. And they paid for that mistake at Hiroshima. You're talking about a different kind of war. Exactly. This time, we can finish what we start. And if we act now, right now, our casualties will be minimal. You know what you're saying. Do you believe that communism is not our mortal enemy? You're justifying murder. Yes, to keep from being murdered. In the name of what? To preserve what? Even if we do survive, what are we? Better than what we say they are? What gives us the right to live then? What makes us worth surviving, Grotusheller, that we are ruthless enough to strike first? Yes, those who can survive are the only ones worth surviving. Fighting for your life isn't the same as murder. Where do you draw the line once you know what the enemy is? How long would the Nazis have kept it up, General, if every Jew they came after had met them with a gun in his hand? But I learned from them, General Black. Oh, I learned. You learned too well, Professor. You learned so well that now there's no difference between you and what you want to kill.
4: And again, this is kind of real thinking in places like the Rand Corporation during the 1960s through the 1980s and the professor is sort of the the person they hired. Academics, nice shiny PhDs, and relatively new studies like political science and international affairs. That was really who they are looking for, and I think uh, Cindy Lumet was aware of that, and and that's why you have this character. So uh, the president then orders US fighters to scramble and shoot down the bombers, and when that fails, he goes in the extra step and helps the Soviets to do it. And as you can imagine, that's going to really make unnerve some of his own people in, in the military, and certainly uh, Grotushella, who, who wants to fight and win a nuclear war. But still, most of the, the people in the room are loyal to the president. So the president is now forced to consider an unthinkable contingency it, once he realizes that Moscow will be destroyed, and that is to destroy New York City in exchange, just kind of have equal levels of suffering, which again is part of the games theory of of, of limited nuclear war at, at the time. But guess what? That's what happens. Now, the last moments of the film show images of people in New York going about their daily lives, unaware of the oncoming disaster, uh, followed by freeze frames of their faces as the nuclear bomb explodes. Incidentally, uh, we should note the president's wife was in New York too, so it's not as funny a ending as Dr. Strangelove.
0: Yeah. And a couple of things that I think are worth teasing out here. I do think it's really important to note that uh, Failsafe in a way, even though it ends with the destruction of Moscow and, and New York, is weirdly a very optimistic movie because it, first of all, absolutely believes that that human beings at the end of the day are going to behave in extremely rational and self-sacrificing ways and that it's technology and not humans that are the fundamental flaw in the whole mutually assured destruction um, calculus. Uh, and, and so I, I think that that's sort of an important thing to point out. And it also, of course is completely unrealistic in imagining that this president would be congratulated for voluntarily annihilating 8 million American citizens, that this would not immediately result in Uh, you know, his removal from office, his prosecution for crimes against humanity, and his execution. Um, And yet here, this president is kind of portrayed as this very noble, rational, level-headed character in the face of other people's hysteria or warmongering or et et cetera.
4: Let's revisit our lies agreed upon and see how each film deals with living under the cloud of nuclear destruction. The first lie concerns MAD, mutually assured destruction. Um, You know, it's easy for us to look back on that era in 2022 and say, hey, you know what? That worked. As absurd as it is on paper or on screen, MAD functions in a bipolar world with stable nation states, supposedly. There's some alarming evidence, however, of mishaps we know about after the fact. Abel Archer in 1983 was this, you know, grand NATO exercise that the Soviet Union was absolutely convinced was going to be a prelude to a first strike. And now we know really that it was uh, just an article of faith in, in not only Soviet intelligence, but but East German, that, uh, that Abel Archer was really a feint for war and they were, you know, very tempted to actually strike back. That we didn't know at the time, but we know about it after the wall came down. So we have all these. We have various radar mishaps. There's a famous incident where a flight of geese in Sweden was mistaken for a nuclear missile. Uh, so you know, human error on both sides. While it didn't actually lead to a disaster, was something that you could count on happening every few years in the height of the Cold War. So things like that make you pause and wonder, you know, was mad, as as effective as we think. But but all in all, you know, the assumption supposedly proved pretty sound.
0: But in 1964, why would anyone think that this was a sound policy? Stanley Kubrick certainly had a dark view of human nature. Every film of his basically underscores this premise. So his absurdist satire really seems like a very natural insane reaction to a planned nuclear standoff. The film doesn't really even have to fictionalize everything that could go wrong because it accurately portrays all the scenarios perfectly.
4: No, that, that's absolutely the case I make to my students. I assign them an article written by Eric Schlosser, uh, which is in The New Yorker, aptly titled, Almost Everything in Dr. Strangelove Was True. And Schlosser, you know, breaks down the science, the policies, all the close calls. Some of them I just talked about, like Abel Archer, and and does it through really um, the post Cold War age as well in a book called Command and Control. But he was really interested in in Doctor Strangelove and certainly knows all the details about Kubrick's process and just how you know how close he got to the truth. And it does really prove just how diligent of the Of a filmmaker Kubrick was because he researched everything so well. So I thought it was worth playing Schlosser explaining just how on the nose Dr. Strangelove really was.
3: Well, under the law, the president is supposed to be the only person in the United States who can authorize the use of a nuclear weapon. Uh, The film Dr. Strangelove was brutally attacked by the Pentagon, by the Air Force when it was released because The central plot element of Dr. Strangelove is that a crazed American general is going to try to start World War III by ordering American bombers to attack the Soviet Union without the president's approval. And the Pentagon said that was ridiculous, and the Air Force said that was ridiculous, and that could never happen. We now know, as a result of declassified documents, that the basic scenario of Dr. Strangelove was entirely possible. And it wasn't until the early 1970s that there were any locks on our nuclear weapons to prevent bomber crews or missile crews from using them. So as recently as 1970, 1971, if an American bomber crew on its own had decided to fly to Moscow and bomb Moscow, or an American bomber crew had decided to fly to Chicago and bomb Chicago with nuclear weapons, there was nothing physically to prevent them from doing it. There was nothing physically to prevent Missile officers from just turning their keys and launching their missiles whenever they wanted to. The only thing that stopped that was the professionalism and the discipline of our military forces.
0: I love that the Pentagon was apoplectic about the movie because it was right. <laughs> and the two thousand and thirteen documentary Command and Control is uh, is also really worth uh, worth our listeners' while uh, as well if they're interested in this. And so what about fail-safe on this topic? I mean, here it's not a crazy general, as I say, but a technical malfunction that throws things off. But MAD is still relevant here, too, because in a bizarre way, fail-safe is telling us the system works because these two leaders, Henry Fonda, the most trustworthy man in America, calmly deliberates with an equally rational Soviet premier and their solution is to sacrifice two cities and move on. Uh, do a you know post mortem, lessons learned. Maybe open up another landline. You know, tinker with Mad, but actually keep it in in place. And 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 of course, this suggests that as long as the right kind of people are in charge, everything is going to be fine.
1: We took it all.
4: The Henry Fonda now, would you have like Tom Hanks play the president here or, yeah, and, and would- Oh would, yeah, uh, that would be it. The Skarsgård, scars guard or somebody Hanks. would be the Russian, you know. Yeah. <laughs> so it, exactly. It gives you this impression that there are always going to be sane people at the helm. Whereas of course, in Dr. Strangelove, you know, it's like Peter Sellers is at the helm and and no one really wants that unless he's there to inter- you know make you laugh. Uh, And and also, this is a bipolar world. These two films are living at the height of of a world divided. And what happens now? What happens in a multipolar world with about a dozen nuclear powers or whatever it is now? Mad is out the window. No, these movies are relics of a a much more stable era, sadly. Do you feel better with North Korea, India, Pakistan, Israel, maybe Saudi Arabia in the future, all having the bomb? You know, can you see leaders on the hotline talking things through if some Pakistani F-16 with a tactical nuke gets too close to Kashmir or whatever it is? Or, hey, Donald Trump is not Henry Fonda. Similarly, Vladimir Putin isn't tired old boring Brezhnev. So, you know, Dr. Strangelove gets to the human factor in a way fail safe never does. Even, you know, Professor Gordeshella is kind of portrayed as a quirky but reasonable guy
0: exactly and 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 of course this is what brings this is this brings us to the second lie about civilians and the nuclear age which is that you know the hawks were not all wearing uniforms chomping cigars riding nuclear missiles like cowboys at a rodeo in many cases in real life The Hawks had advanced degrees in the hard sciences or in international relations. Uh, They are eggheads with little or no exposure to actual war. All of the the blood and guts and horror is sort of drained out of it in uh, uh, games theory. Both our films feature civilians playing the most frightening roles and Scary because they actually reflect reality in the 1960s. And so, you know, you mentioned the Rand Corporation earlier, and I think you're right. The best way to introduce some of these figures is to kind of map some of the characters in these films, uh, especially Dr. Strangelove, to their real life equivalents.
4: Yes, and we've established that Stanley Kubrick is a meticulous researcher and he immersed himself in the perverse world of nuclear strategy. Uh, so and let's start with General Buck Churchson you know so he you know we'll start with the an actual military person here but a very real one because he's based on Air Force General Curtis LeMay, the cigar chomping Hawk who pushed Kennedy to bomb Cuba like in the first couple hours. Um, you put Georgey Scott next to LeMay and they're indistinguishable uh, and during World War II, Lemay trumpeted carpet bombing and applied the same mindset to the nuclear age. You know, he's he was, uh, you know, loved the idea of essentially burning Japan to the ground and Germany for that matter. And if you want evidence of just what a swell guy Lemay was, he was George Wallace's running mate in 1968. So after, you know, after he was essentially pushed out for being a little too crazy, so he to the end he was uh, what you would expect. Yeah, and
0: I think there's a really interesting assessment of LeMay over these many phases of uh, American sort of global supremacy in Errol Morris's documentary of Robert McNamara, The Fog of War. LeMay figures fairly fairly substantially in that if people are, are interested. Then, of course, you get President Merkin Muffly, And it's not an accident that basically both his first and his last name <laughs> are um, slang terms for uh, a part of woman's anatomy. And there is something here that I do want to point out is that there is a, a level of misogyny built into what were at the time, perfectly funny jokes, but that uh, there's a kind of portrayal of the same characters as inherently feminized characters, which I think is, you know, is a little bit problematic. But, you know, in this instance, President Merkin Muffley is played by an egg-headed Peter Sellers. Caesar balding. And it's a very close analog, obvious analog to Adelaide Stevenson, who we spoke about in a previous um, episode, uh, and if you put up a picture of Adelaide Stevenson, you'd be like, oh, oh, yes, this is not an, I mean, this isn't just a little bit similar. They're really trying to make him look like Adelaide Stevenson, who was a perennial Democratic presidential candidate, certainly very well respected, but he was sort of an intellectual type and he had his moment as the UN ambassador during the Cuban Missile Crisis. And, and Sellers plays him perfectly as the mild-mannered, Guy who's trying to calm down the Soviet premier like a patient wife with an excitable husband. Uh, and, and let's play that scene, because Sellers is just s- so good, and I, I just love this phone conversation where we're only hearing one side of it, but we can absolutely imagine what's going on on the other end of the phone. Hello? Uh, hello, Di- hello, Dimitri. Listen,
6: uh, I can't hear too well. Do you suppose you could turn the music down just a little? Oh, that's much better. <laughs> yes. Fine, I can hear you now, Dimitri. Clear and plain and coming through fine. I'm coming through fine too, eh? Good. Then, well, then, as you say, we're both coming through fine. Good. Well, it's good that you're fine then, and, and I'm fine. I agree with you. It's great to be fine. (laughs) Now then, Dimitri, you know how we've always talked about the possibility of something going wrong with the bomb. The bomb, Dimitri. The hydrogen bomb. Well, now, what happened is um, one of our base commanders, he had a sort of, Well, he went a little funny in the head. You know, just a little funny. And uh, he went and did a silly thing. Well, I'll tell you what he did. He ordered his planes to attack your country. Uh, Well, let me finish, Dimitri. Let me finish, Dimitri. Well, listen, how do you think I feel about it? Can you imagine how I feel about it, Dimitri? Why do you think I'm calling you? Just to say hello? Of course I like to speak to you. Of course I like to say hello. Not now, but any time, Dimitri. I'm just calling up to tell you something terrible has happened. It's a friendly call. Of course it's a friendly call. Listen, if it wasn't friendly, you probably wouldn't have even got it.
4: Now, Muffley is is obviously not a hawk, but... You can see how the president can fail to avert disaster, even when they're ostensibly the sane and rational ones. And that's kind of Kubrick's point: is it doesn't matter what the you know who's in charge here; it's it's going to it's it's a disaster in the making, and the people around the sane person can even sway him in the end. And that's what happens. Muffley's on board with the mineshaft gap idea once he hears about the ratio of ten women to one guy. <laughs> so even he's. Susceptible. And what about the man himself, Dr. Merkwedisch Lieb, or Strange Love? He's a composite of several well known figures. Let's start with his Nazi background, a clear reference to, by 1964, a household name like Werner von Braun. Von Braun built the V 2 and uh, obviously came to the United States in 1947 and became head of NASA in 1959 while still building missiles for uh, the army all throughout this time. He was on the cover of Time, wrote articles in Collier's magazine, was on Disney once a week. He was the most well-known of the Nazi scientists we brought over through Operation Paperclip. And Strangelove is obviously one of those scientists too. Um, Among his actual, one of Viner von Braun's proposed inventions was an actual Death Star, You know, a satellite that could rain nuclear weapons anywhere on the globe. And that's something he really thought out and planned. That sounds a lot like something Strangelove would do.
0: And of course, because you're not going to plug your own book, I'll do it for you. Uh, If anybody is interested in this whole topic more, um, Brian's book, Our Nazis, it's funny you said
4: that. It's our Germans, <laughs> uh, because our Germans. Our Germans. Right? Yes, there but we, it's, that's there a great go. Freudian Let slip me, uh, right there. Yeah, <laughs> our Germans. Project Paperclip from the National Security State. Yeah, but I love that. I like. I, it almost was our Nazis, well, right?
0: <laughs> there you go. I just. I was just selling. I was just selling the whole premise right there. <laughs> Yeah, and isn't there, uh, there's this great clip of uh, Von Braun doing Disney's Man in Space series, which was the most watched TV show in 1955, right?
4: Yeah, it was, and and even the Soviet Union was obsessed with this show because they were also thinking about space travel. They actually requested copies of the Disney Man in Space series, which, you know, a lot of young uh Youngsters were drawn to, and it has a lot of great animation, but actually, this was had a lot of hard science about space travel. And Von Braun, and not just him, but other Project Paperclip scientists were just regulars on this show. So I, I just wanted to show you, play a clip of it, because the accent, Von Braun's accent, his bearing, you know, this, his expertise, it's exactly the sort of thing that, that Kubrick would have seen and been like, okay, that's, that's how I got to model. Strange Love. So I think it's worth just hearing Von Braun speak for a few moments and, and act like the expert that he was, because you can see some of that in Strange Love when he's explaining everything about how to destroy the world. And I think it's a, it's a great little connection to make.
7: If we were to start today on an organized and well supported space program, I believe a practical passenger rocket. Could be built and tested within 10 years. Of course, it would be foolish to rush headlong into building a four stage rocket, manned with a crew, and attempt to fire it into an orbit without first following a step by step research and development program.
0: It really is uncanny. Peter Sellers just uh, has him dead to rights uh, with a little comedy thrown in. Another person that Dr. Strangelove represents is the father of the hydrogen bomb, a Hungarian immigrant, Edward Teller. Now, he escaped the Nazis and then the Soviets before the war and worked closely with Oppenheimer on the Manhattan Project. But he, you know, never thought twice about what it was that they were producing. Uh, And here's a clip from a documentary on Teller that's called the real life Dr. Strangelove. No one who discovers anything does have or can have an idea how
7: it will be used. All the scientist can do is to go
4: forward, to understand, to apply, and to explain. Edward Teller said that he didn't like being called the father of the hydrogen bomb. But as a Jewish emigre from fascist Hungary in the 1930s, the particle physicist was convinced that to save the world from tyranny, you needed the most powerful weapon known to man. Yeah, I you know what's fascinating about the whole documentary is that it puts him in opposition to someone like Oppenheimer, who was you know, horrified by the, the results of of the atomic bomb. Whereas, and as we said, Teller didn't give it a, th- a second thought, and, uh, and 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 instead said, "Well, let's." Make let's go to the next step here, which of course was the hydrogen bomb. And finally, a, a third person that uh, is modeled, you know, that is, is an influence on *Strange Love* is Herman Kahn, probably a lesser-known figure. He was the founder of the Hudson Institute, a kind of right-wing think tank, uh, and also he worked for the Rand Corporation. And Kahn casually planned for nuclear war and advocated applying game theory to nuclear strategy. Sidney Lumet. Um, modeled Professor Gotashula on Khan, so here we have an instance where Herman Khan is a model for both characters in, in our films. Um, and you can throw in Henry Kissinger as another influence as well, since he wrote his dissertation in the '50s on fighting a nuclear war, and certainly he fits the bill as a hawk. And he's also German, of course, but. No, a German Jew who escaped Germany for the United States.
0: So thinking of all of these people, maybe we should hear a little from Strangelove himself. Here is his first appearance discussing the doomsday device. And you can find the real Herman Kahn basically saying the same thing. On some longer YouTube interviews, that we couldn't find a, a perfect soundbite to give you to, to listen to.
8: A moment, please, Mr. President. Under the authority granted me as Director of Weapons Research and Development, I commissioned last year a study of this project by the Blend Corporation. Based on the findings of the report, my conclusion was that this idea was not a practical deterrent for reasons which at this moment must be all too obvious.
6: Then you mean it is possible for them to have built such a thing?
8: <laughs> Mr. President, the technology required is easily within the means of even the smallest nuclear power. It requires
6: only the will to do so. But How is it possible for this thing to be triggered automatically and at the same time impossible to untrigger?
8: Mr. President, it is not only possible, it is essential. That is the whole idea of this machine, you know. Deterrence is the art of producing in the mind of the enemy the fear to attack. And so because of the automated and irrevocable decision-making process, which... Rules out human meddling. The doomsday machine is terrifying. It's, it's simple to understand. And completely credible and convincing. Gee, I wish we had one of them doomsday machines, don't The whole point of the doomsday machine is lost.
4: If you keep it a secret, why didn't you tell the world, eh? Yeah, you have to love Buck Churches in there. Man, I wish we had one of those doomsday machines. The actual doomsday device was called <laughs> Dead Hand, and the Soviets completed it in 1985. So as we've said, this isn't fiction here. This is uh, all being discussed at the time and then really fully realized, um, although you know, much later than the 1964.
0: I found it really instructive to watch these back to back. I mean, one is ostensibly a satire and is obviously quite funny and the other is meant to be serious and frightening. I admire Sidney Lumet so much, but Kubrick's perspective that mad is best depicted as a dark comedy really is the correct choice.
4: I agree. Uh, Yeah, and we spent a lot of time today focusing on and appreciating the absurdist humor of Dr. Strangelove or how I learned to stop worrying and love the bomb. But we also want to point out that With the distance of time, it's quite possibly fail safe that seems most absurd and unrealistic to audiences.
0: Certainly, my students who watch both movies in the same week consistently express that they find the high minded, selfless, and resolute politicians of fail safe to be totally unrealistic. Perhaps that's more a depressing commentary on today that students raised in this political era can't imagine. A high-minded or selfless politician?
4: No, it's hard to hard to blame them there. And as we described, the, the finale of Fail Safe has you know total thermonuclear annihilation avoided because the U.S. president and the Soviet premier agree to sacrifice millions in Moscow and New York, including their own friends and families, just to set an example. They deny really the insane calculus of mutually assured destruction.
0: Yes, and so, even though the last sound is the shriek of cables melting in the blast, Failsafe is still, oddly, a very optimistic movie. I mean, Henry Fonda tells us we can avoid this future, and he and the Russian premier show us that even if we can't get rid of all of them, limiting
4: nuclear warfare is also possible. Let's play that scene. You'll hear uh, Larry Hagman's voice as a translator speaking the words of the Russian premier, and then, near the end, the voice of the American ambassador in Moscow.
2: The premier, sir. Yes, Mr. Chairman.
4: Mr. President. I have ordered our long-range
7: missiles to stand up from their alert. Uh, Only that part of our defense ...that has a chance of shooting down your bomber. You still active. Do not think we have much of a chance. I know. Uh, and yet, uh, this was nobody's fault. I don't agree. Uh, no human being did wrong. Uh,
2: no one is to be blamed. We're to blame both of us. We let our machines get out of hand. Two great cities may be destroyed. Millions of innocent people killed. What do we say to them, Mr. Chairman? Accidents will happen? I won't accept that.
7: Uh, all I know is uh, that uh, as long as we have weapons...
2: All I know is that men are responsible. We're responsible for what happens to us. Today we had a taste of the future. Do we learn from it or do we go on the way we have? What do we do, Mr. Chairman? What do we say to the dead?
7: Isaac, if if we are men, we must say this will not happen again, with all that stands between us.
2: We put it there, Mr. Chairman, and we're not helpless. What we put between us, we can remove. Mr. President. Yes, Jay.
7: I can hear the sound of explosions from the northeast. The sky is very bright. All lit up.
0: So now that you've listened to that, we'd like you to remember the equivalent moment at the end of Love*, when despite every effort, the bombs still fly. It isn't a limited war, it's doomsday, and it isn't witnessed by sober, responsible men. Instead, we get slim Pickens in a cowboy hat, straddling a nuclear bomb as it heads towards its target, triggering total annihilation. Somehow that seems more realistic.
4: So let's review our lies for today. We had just two. The first was not so much a lie as the problematic nature of MAD. We hate to admit it, but it worked. We've managed to get this far without killing everyone on the planet. And yet, the general consensus is that it wasn't so much that it worked, it's that it we all just got really, 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 really lucky. Whether it's the Cuban Missile Crisis or Able Archer or a dozen other instances the public doesn't even know about, we spent decades dancing on the edge of the abyss.
0: And because these near misses have almost triggered responses that had nothing to do with the reality on the ground, the notion that there could be a strategic, calculated, limited nuclear war that didn't get out of control is just as absurd. So oddly, we concur with our students. In many ways, fail-safe is the
4: more absurd plot. Yes, and our second lie you know, comes from that one, and that is that it's always the military who are trigger-happy. Sure, you've got the Curtis Lemays of the world, but in actual fact, whether it's Gordichella or Strangelove, Herman Kahn, or Edward Teller, civilian experts have often been the ones most willing to flirt with disaster. As we see in both movies, there are military hawks, but the reality is that it was was and is the, the advisors, the fellows at all the think tanks, the smooth talkers with access to the politicians and the ability to sound eminently reasonable, who pose the greatest danger.
0: We have links to a lot of interesting stuff on our website for this week's episode in particular. Make sure that you check that out. And we look forward to the rest of the episodes in this season, so we hope you'll join us.
4: Lives Agreed Upon is written and produced by Brian Krim and Leah Parody. Our theme was written by Simon Parody. We are a proud partner of the New Books Network and can be found wherever you find your favorite podcasts. For transcripts and links to what you hear in each episode, as well as bonus content, visit our companion website, liesagreedupon.com. You can also find us on Facebook and on Twitter at lies underscore upon.